At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Northrop Grumman on this National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is our good friend, Justin Sherman of the Atlantic Council Think Tank, as well as a contributor to Wired Magazine. Justin, thanks very much as always for joining us. Great to be here as always. Uh, an absolute pleasure having you on. And before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, while L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And Rafael USA sponsors our coverage uh, or has sponsored our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show. Justin, a lot of reverberations from the resignation of uh, the uh, United States Air Force's former chief cyber officer, uh, Nick Shalon. Um, you know, certainly uh, very serious accusations. Uh, he granted an interview to the Financial Times, which was eye opening, uh, effectively saying that China is superior to us, uh, whether it's on uh, cyber capabilities uh, or on artificial intelligence, and also had a damning indictment that the uh, Pentagon has failed. Uh, to address uh, glaring uh, software as well as uh, hardware vulnerabilities. You've joined us on this program numerous times, as has virtually every cyber leader, and we have discussed that issue. Uh, we heard from Chris Cleary a couple of uh, weeks ago when we interviewed him at the Navy uh, League show. He is the principal cyber advisor to the United States Navy. And he said, look, the priority is buying new hardware as opposed to addressing these vulnerabilities. If we focused on addressing those vulnerabilities, we would be able to resolve them in a few short years. What is Nick uh, Shalon saying that is so powerful and potentially needle moving at this point? He said a couple of things. Uh, one is what you referenced, talking about inertia, talking about a lack of senior leadership attention to issues like cybersecurity. Uh, and really just spending a lot of time uh, focused on really basic vulnerability patching and other security measures that you know you would expect should have already been in place. Uh, he also talked about, because of that, having to spend a lot of his time focused on what he described as basic software configurations and addressing basic vulnerabilities, rather than also thinking forward and innovatively and looking at uh, you know where the organization needs to head vis-a-vis -vis IT and where you know adversary states like like China are headed, uh, which leads to the third point, which is he talked about um, you know his perspective on artificial intelligence and where that stands uh, in terms of the U.S.-China relationship. So you know he, it really spanned a couple of different complaints, but um, you know his resignation certainly made waves. Um, what do you think uh, comes of this, right? I mean, uh, you were immersed in Facebook land uh, last week uh, because of very, very compelling congressional testimony uh, by a whistleblower who had inside information. I want to talk about that in a moment. 
But do you think that this is going to result in hearings? Because there are members of Congress that are looking at this and saying, well, wait a minute. You, you know, and this, it, it's not like this is not a known issue to to um, members. Uh, but do you think that this ends up going somewhere ultimately? It might or it might not. He, I forget if he said he wanted to testify or he was planning to testify. I mean, look, right. I mean, you know, as he talked about, large organizations have inertia. That's true of the Pentagon. That's true with IT, right? If you look across the federal government at various GAO reports, you'll see pretty basic cybersecurity requirements, uh, you know, put in place months and months before a report is completed. And you're lucky if agency is done, you know, 50% of that stuff, right? I mean, it's just really slow and there's a lot of basic, uh, there are a lot of basic security problems that have to be addressed. Um, and then the AI stuff, I mean, it's, you know, I think there's a real problem with the AI arms race framing, um, you know, suggesting that just because China is doing a lot more facial recognition surveillance that we should do the same and steamroll civil liberties or something like that, or just because they're throwing ethics out the window, we should do the same. Um, but all that said, that issue U.S., China, artificial intelligence innovation uh, is another hot button one. And so, like you said, I do think this will, you know, at least result in some kind of, of congressional attention. And I have been uh, talking to friends who say that, um, you know, sometimes even those involved in the process get very frustrated and resign, even if the process is moving forward. And there are some who say that the Air Force is actually doing a pretty decent job uh, and has been working to get on step in order to make some of these big changes. Again, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. Um, you have been looking at this issue, among others, for a very long time. Are, are we making any progress at all in moving uh, some of these needles? Because if you look at it from a vulnerability standpoint, we're tackling the ransomware uh, part of it. I want to get to that in a minute. But from your standpoint as a, as a seasoned observer, are you seeing any of these cyber needles moving forward, especially in this uh, administration that, that has a very, very highly qualified senior uh, cyber team, whether uh, Chris Inglis uh, at the White House and Newberger at the White House. You've got uh, Jen Easterly, who's uh, over at CISA uh, and elsewhere across the department, do, uh, across the government. Do you see the kind of, are, are you beginning to see any material progress from this first class team? Yeah, there's been a big, a big push across the board, I think, to focus more um, on cybersecurity, of course, the bar on that was extremely low, you know, whether that's just because nobody paid attention to it or in the last administration, Rudy Giuliani was the cyber czar. So, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, but but yes, they focused You're a lot not on just it. being flip about that, by the way. No, I mean, he re he really was. And, and so that just goes to show you how devalued that issue was. Right. I mean, John Bolton uh, got rid of the White House cyber coordinator position, which is a vital one to protect the country. So, um yeah, so, so all to say, the Biden administration is making huge strides, particularly coming out of the last administration, um, as you said, in putting people in the White House and other parts of, of the, the executive branch that really do have deep expertise in these areas and really know what they're doing. And so we see CISA standing up uh, more cooperation with the private sector on threat stuff. We see the ransomware issue, which like you said, we can talk about, and the US pushing for more international cooperation, on capacity building, on resilience. So, you know, there's a lot of good work being done. Um, that said, of course, the same challenges in some ways persist. Stuff like the federal acquisition process still does not really prioritize cybersecurity enough. Um, 
you know, lots of privacy and security bills in Congress continue to stall. So obviously that's not something the administration can control, but, um, you know, I, th- I think they're really doing a lot and they're doing what they can to address parts of the problem. We have a tendency of oftentimes um, seeing a challenge bearing down on us, have tracked the challenge bearing down on us, and then it sort of has a tendency of smacking us in the face and we're sort of surprised like, wow, well, yeah, you know, sort of where did that come from? What has to change for us to take the methodical approach to address some of these known hardware and software vulnerabilities. I mean, we're trying to do that a little bit through CMMC. We're trying to do this with guidance that, hey, we're going to hold people to account uh, for the kind of software they end up using, right? But I mean, at the you know, ultimately, all of this is actually remarkably penetrated. We, we know that. We've known that. What's it going to take to be able to actually address it? I mean, is this something that the defense secretary has to get involved in? Uh, and, you know, and, and, and basically, how do we do this? Because in the end, as, as Chris Cleary said, we're putting the acquisition of new systems ahead of addressing the vulnerabilities of the systems we have. And the big problem there is it doesn't matter if you have the world's best Navy, Army, or Air Force, if it can't get underway or gets knocked out of the sky or stalls out in the middle of the ocean, there you go, game, set, match. Well, I think that's exactly it, right? It's, it's a priorities issue. If you, right, I mean, many people clearly, are, as you said, are of the belief that well, it's better to have software right now that, you know, turns on and I can click things than it is to have software that's secure. Um, But again, that's an opinion and that's a, that's a prioritization calculus, right? As you said, I would argue the complete opposite, which is that why are you going to buy software that works in, you know, your nice little lab or whatever testing facility you're using it in. And then the minute you go into real full-on combat with a sophisticated adversary, they hack everything in two seconds and knock you know, planes out of the sky or whatever it is, right? I mean, so I think just you really have to have that shift in mindset where part of a technology being usable is it being secure because you know you can depend on it when you actually get into that high stakes scenario to be relatively safe against someone trying to take it down. Um let me take you to the ransomware agreement. Um, 30 plus nations, the administration brought a lot of folks together. On the other hand, if you look at it, you know, um, there are governments that don't seem particularly interested in holding to account anybody that's operating within their borders. These groups are transient. Um, they come and go uh, and self-form and dissolve. And, you know, some would like to say, well, it was tough talk by the United States that did it, as opposed to, you know, I mean, not to keep pointing to Dmitry Alperovich uh, of um, the Silverado Technology Accelerator. Um you know, some of these guys have just gotten their ransomware money and are going to retirement until they reconstitute. You know, it's sort of like a fund, right? These guys are like right. funds. Right. They start, they have an X amount of period, they make an X amount of money, and then they go away and then they come back again. Is this agreement going to, do you think, meaningfully change anything on the ransomware dynamic? I think it could. Um, it, right. It, you know, as with all these things, it depends how the execution goes operationally. Uh, right. Because we've seen, for example, with this on a different issue, the, the EU US Tech Trade Council, where there's been all this lofty talk of techno democracies and it's sort of a lot of real problems they're running into and actually getting agreement. But, but on this, I do think it's good. I think, right. They, you know, as you said, there's, there's 30 countries at this summit that they're going to host. Russia obviously is not, not on the invite list. Um, 
And the focus spans a bunch of different areas with respect to ransomware. Part of it is about boosting security and resilience in uh, different countries, you know, security being you're trying to prevent the initial ransomware attack. So, you know, stopping things like phishing and then the resilience part being in the event of failure because of, you know, a hack is of course going to happen. How do you come back? How do you restore systems? How do you ensure continuity of operations, et cetera? So that's a really important thing. There's also a focus in the White House, uh, you know, background sheet on it in tackling the cryptocurrency issue, because as you just referenced with criminals using this as a giant cash source, most of these rents, I mean, maybe all of these ransomware payments really are paid via cryptocurrency. And so that's something else that the administration has talked about is if that's the reason they're launching these attacks in the first place, if it's about money and it's less ideological in most cases, let's target that money. Let's make sure they can't actually get the financial return the calculus being maybe that will then disincentivize them from doing it uh, in the future. And what's your sense on the best way to fight that? Just to recap for our, our audience, because that's another uh, issue you've spent a little time thinking of uh, about, I should say. Yeah, I mean, that's more more complicated, right? Some, some countries, China, have really heavily cracked down on cryptocurrencies. The US has, there's some SEC guidance on it, but uh, it's still a pretty unregulated space companies popping up all the time in California that throw all matter of things on the blockchain that including those that should not be on the blockchain. Um, So, you know, that's, that's really a challenge. I mean, the other thing I'll say though, that was in the white house uh, announcement was they mentioned that talks continue with the Russians on uh, Putin cracking down on ransomware groups from within Russia and on coming up with cyber red lines in general. And it was just a few sentences literally at the very bottom of the White House release about this ransomware summit. But that's a really important thing to note. I know we've talked about it on here before because so many of these ransomware attacks are launched by groups in Russia that it really is going to come down when we talk about international law enforcement work to getting the Russians to in some way at least crack down a little bit on on this problem. Um, you you uh, mentioned uh, the blockchain. Explain that to our audience who might not fully understand what that means. Yeah, so the blockchain is essentially um, you know a, a system for recording and storing data that's distributed. So the idea is because you have a digital ledger that's not in a single location, but it's spread out across this entire network of devices. Uh, you know, it's more difficult for people to cheat uh, or, or to, you know, to lie about their information, for example. So, of course, in practice, there's lots of real security problems and, and stuff like that, as with any technology, but that's the general idea. Um, and so a lot of cryptocurrencies are funneled through the blockchain in an encrypted manner, which makes it difficult for uh, or more difficult, you know, in some cases for law enforcement to track effectively. Let me uh, take you to the Facebook uh, question. Um, obviously, a lot of debate, a lot of discussion in the world that uh, social media plays in societal discord overall, right? I mean, in, on many metrics, you could look at uh, domestic extremism or domestic division to be a much bigger strategic uh, threat 
uh, to the United States and its future than even China, right? I mean, ultimately, China doesn't care whether we survive or we don't survive as long as we don't impede what it is they want to do while still buying their products, right? I mean, economically, they want us to be involved, um, what, you know, whether it's in our climate change plans with their solar cells or anything else, uh, right? I mean, they need, you know, if, if, if you have a com- country of 1.5 billion people, 1.6 billion people, you, you need the rest of the world to be buying your stuff if you want to give them jobs. Um, what were some of the most important takeaways from your perspective uh, from the Facebook hearings? And what does that mean for the future of information, disinformation, um, and and domestic discord at the end of the day, right? Because it was a unifying issue on a bipartisan basis on the one hand, but for very, very different reasons. Yeah, that's exactly right. So so there's there's two key things, I think, which we knew already from the hearings. And then I want to talk about what you just said with the bipartisanship. So the first big thing, which we kind of knew already, but the whistleblower further underscored and with new information is, of course, that Facebook is not transparent about what it's doing. Uh, it's not transparent about its internal checks. It's not transparent about misinformation and disinformation on the platform. Um, and, you know, with her leaks specifically, it also buried research on uh, Instagram's toxicity for teenagers and, and teenage girls. So, you know, there's a real culture of just if we find out something bad is happening, including with Russian disinformation, we're just going to bury it and we're not going to tell anybody, essentially, which we kind of already knew. The second thing, which we also kind of already knew was uh, I don't think I think members of Congress know this now. I don't think we can take uh, many Facebook executives comments in good faith anymore. Um, you know, if you watched some of the interviews that uh, Facebook executives have given in the last two weeks around January 6th, around disinformation, around hate speech, it really is astounding the mental gymnastics and the, uh, you know, straw man arguments. For example, Nick Clegg, you know, the former British politician who, who is now an executive there, went on CNN, I think it was a week and a half ago now, and you know, they were trying to get him to talk about the fact that the attack on our Capitol that happened on January 6th was in part planned on Facebook. People had all kinds of groups, private chats going. And his response essentially was, well, how can we blame Facebook? Because there are so many sources of polarization, like we can't just blame the technology. So again, it's sort of this this straw man argument thing. Of course, nobody's actually saying it's all their fault, but they don't want to take any responsibility. Um, and then the last point I'll make, which you, which you referenced with the bipartisan consensus, that is a headline we see all the time, that there's bipartisan consensus on big tech. Uh, but that's just not the case. As you said, you know, different members of Congress and different parties care about different issues. They, in some cases, have factually based views of the problem, like with you know, COVID misinformation, and in some cases, continue to make things up, like the fact that there's uh, you know, censorship of conservatives, which tons of research has shown there isn't. Um, so, you know, it's fine to look at a hearing and say, wow, members of both parties got their sound bites in, you know, bashing Facebook. But this is the problem we mentioned earlier, where if we look at the long game, where's the regulation on big tech? Where's the privacy and security regulation? It's not there. And that's why things aren't getting passed, because they can't agree on those, on those fundamental issues. And I should point out, right, Nick Clegg was uh, Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, in uh, what at the time was a, uh, 
uh, you know, sort of coalition government situation. Uh, and uh, I should point out that it was Frances Haugen who was the first uh, Facebook whistleblower, and she's been joined now by so uh, Sophie Zhang, if I'm uh, correct, has also uh, surfaced. So where do you think this issue uh, goes next? Um, you know, I mean, we've, we've had discussions like this. I mean, it's certainly nothing this explosive. Uh, Justin, but but where does the issue go, and what are sort of the national security issues that are associated with this? Right, because it, it's a challenge. Whether it's vaccinations for people in the military, right? I mean, it is the source of an enormous amount of disinformation, right. ultimately, and it's 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 on Facebook, or originates, or resides, or you know, emanates from. Yeah, there's lots of national security implications. Obviously, as you said, if we have members of our military that don't believe they need to be inoculated against a virus that harms uh, our readiness, right? If we have, um, you know, people in general believing that they don't need to worry about the coronavirus or any other disease in the future, that hurts public health and, and the country and the economy in general. Um, you know, you have Russian disinformation, there's lots of issues. I think the domestic extremism one, uh, it really is a huge problem here. And you know, as the lines, if they ever were there in the first place between national and homeland security continue to blur, I think January 6th really quite literally splashed that across all of our TV screens where we just cannot keep focusing entirely on China and Russia and Iran and looking at, yes, very real external threats to US security, but we also have to look internally and, you know, look at the ways in which our democracy, our systems of government, politicians are literally being attacked because of people who live in the U.S. and who are plotting uh, on social media platforms or getting these ideas from social media platforms. So, you know, the domestic extremism uh, piece really is is huge here. And and do you think, uh, last question, do you think that we've crossed a Rubicon on this? I mean, is there going to be action at this point? Some areas uh, in which Facebook and other platforms are operating there, I, I could see there being bipartisan action, the understandably and rightfully so, right? The stuff about um, teenagers having body image issues, self-harming, even, even suicide because of what they, in part, right? Because of what they see on social media platforms is something that gets members of both parties angry. Um, but like we said, as soon as you start talking about something like disinformation, you have, you know, leading Republicans, for example, who will complain about the Kremlin and then go spread lies about coronavirus. So, you know, they're, they're, maybe in some narrow areas we might see movement, but, um, you know, it, it really is going to be reflective of broader, I think, congressional polarization. Justin, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. From cyberspace to outer space. Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.